Thank you for tuning into the Hope When There Was None podcast. And here we share stories to educate you, to empower you and inspire. So thank you for listening and tuning in. Please do me a favor and share if you have a favorite episode, or maybe you think somebody else that needs a dose of positivity and to maybe break open some of the darkness, let there be light. So thank you again for all of your support and encouragement. I hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, Hi, and we're live. This is Melinda from Hope When There Was None. And my guest today has got some really fascinating information to give you. Uh, but we're going to hear about his journey. So I'm going to get actually let you take it away. Now, you've dealt with some grief at a very young age, transitioning into from the military life into the civilian life, and then becoming a leadership coach. And I'd love to hear more about this. Actually, I know quite a bit about it. But let me let you share this with the audience. Go ahead and take that away. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for having me, and it's and it's awesome to be with you this morning. It's early on the East Coast, I know, and even earlier on the West Coast. So, um, I'm, I know you said there'll be people who catch this recorded later, but yeah, um, so for me, I and I actually just I was thinking about this a lot last week. It, you and I have talked before, and I was thinking about it after you and I had our first conversation. Um, I I spent some time thinking about what those key moments have been leading mm -hmm. up to this point. For me, so I was uh, born in Ohio to an Indian father and a Cuban mother. So I'm first generation born American. Um, and from early on, we didn't talk about it too much in the house. We didn't make a big deal about it. My parents didn't make a big deal about it. We spoke English. I, I spoke Spanish. I used to be fluent. I've lost most of it now. But, um, you know, for all practical purposes, you know, the, my parents focused on just me being curious and me trying to learn as much as possible. But I was, I lived a pretty sheltered childhood. I didn't do much as a kid. I was really tight with mom, not so tight with dad. Uh, and so, you know, for until I was 14 years old, that worked fine. Uh, and then my mom uh, suffered a stroke on a Saturday morning or a Saturday afternoon, rather, sitting in our kitchen. Uh, she collapsed into me. I was barely able to hang on to her. My dad came in and helped, got her to the couch. Uh, we called the ambulance 48 hours. She was dead. Um, and so, you know, that was jarring for all the obvious reasons. But what I didn't expect, and I don't know that anybody would expect it, was, um, you know, when... And I've seen loved ones die, but this is the closest I had been to it. My grandparents had passed away prior to this, and I had seen other people pass away. But I was never the one really put in the position to make a decision. Uh, I was just really watching, and I was a young kid. So in this case, I'm 14. I'm sitting next to my dad. We're sitting inside of the ICU room, and my mother was an organ donor. And so when the loved one passes away, if they're an organ donor, the hospital has to do things to keep the body kind of going so that the organs stay viable, which is kind of a nice way of saying they, they put her in a bag and kept her warm, which was really, it was weird to see. I mean, I understand the science behind it now, but of course it was just a weird scene. So we're sitting there, there's all this machinery hooked up to her. Um, she's already been declared past and we're just kind of sitting there in silence and this um this guy shows up knocks on the door uh wearing a suit pretty young looking back i think he was probably 35 he's probably i'm 36 now so probably my age now and he just starts asking us questions hey uh where do you want the body to go where's the service going to be 
Uh, do you have anyone else who is here with you? Do you have next of kin identified? Do you have, uh, did she have a living will? Did she have a will? He's asking us all these questions. Mm. And my, my dad's not really answering a lot of them. So I looked at the guy and I said, you need to come back. We, we're not ready for this right now. Uh, and, I, and I remember being upset at him. I remember being upset at the hospital. I remember being upset at a lot of things. Uh, looking back, I'm sure he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He just bowed his head and left, came back, I think, four hours later, something like that. And in the meantime, I had decided where would the service be, how will take care of her body. I decided, I think, that we would cremate her because that's what her parents had done. She didn't have a will. And I had never had a conversation with her about um, last wishes and whatnot because that was mom and I was 14 and there's no way she was dying soon, you know, let alone that early on. So, so I started to make those decisions and then I made decisions about family to invite and to notify and, and all of those types of things. And, and then got into high school and the relationship with my father ebbed and flowed. Um, it wasn't very good all through high school. And it really hasn't been good for, for the last 10, 15 years. And, and we've only recently started to talk again about things and, and find some commonality. But, you know, I, my, I, was, I was born in Ohio and spent the first 14 years of my life more or less living normally. I was a sheltered kid, um, wasn't in good shape, wasn't really athletic. I didn't really do much. But to me, life was peachy because I had my mom there. My dad was doing his thing. He was a university professor for almost 30 years. He worked a lot. Wow. Uh, I didn't feel as connected to him, but you know, we would still play catch and we would still hang out. And so there wasn't really anything to speak of that was defining until she died. And then it's taken me about 20 years really to, to think through what that all meant to me. That really was a, a switch in my head because up to that point, I really didn't speak my mind. I didn't ask questions when I wanted to. I was really pretty timid. And then almost immediately, I think I realized or, you know, God, God pushed me into a position where I had to realize there's no one there to speak for you or protect you. Ultimately, you have to be able to trust yourself to do it. And so very quickly, I got to a point where I was like, well, if, if I see something wrong, I have to say something. Right. Or if I have a question in class, I have to ask the question. So. High school wasn't that good of an experience. I got through it, applied to a couple, to a few colleges, got into a few colleges, got rejected from a few, ended up going to Ohio State, which is a huge school. Uh, graduated with 60 classmates out of high school, went to a school that today numbers near 70,000 in terms of a student population. We're a big school. And I made that choice consciously and I had everybody around me saying, uh, you're gonna be a number, you're gonna hate it, you're not gonna make friends, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but when I went there, I was, I was going through the military training program, ROTC, and I had, you know, I made friends just like anyone else does. Uh, I, two of my three dorm roommates, I still talk to you to this day. Oh, that's awesome. And so I spent five years in school cause I was not a good student there either. Um, but never did a day go by that I didn't pass someone on campus that I knew honestly. And I, and I used to, when I worked on campus a couple of years, I told prospective students that I said, it is a big place. It takes almost a half hour to walk across campus, Wow. <laughs> uh, which makes class scheduling a challenge. Right. But if you think, if you come here and want to be anonymous, you can, 
But if you come here and want to lead and connect with other people and you want to make an impact and you want to do something, you absolutely can. Just because it's a big school doesn't mean you can't contribute usefully. I saw someone I knew every single day. I built strong relationships that to this day still endure um, in a place like that. And so I think I learned from that experience that you know, if, if I can go from the environment I was in as a kid through my mom's death through high school in a pretty small community high school to 70,000 or at the time, like 58, 60,000 students, but make friends, find opportunities to lead small groups, find opportunities to start communicating with people who, you know, are out of my league and I'm starting to branch out to all these places. Well, you can certainly do it even at a bigger scale. Right. But it all comes back to what you're individually able to take responsibility for. So I entered active duty Air Force in 2008. Um, I was a nuclear missile operator, which is a, a unique world to be a part of. I chose that career field. It wasn't popular at the time, but I'm a history buff. I like reading about the Cold War. And it's one of the things that only the Air Force does is nuclear missiles. Right. So you can be a military policeman in all sorts of places. You can do personnel work. You can do all sorts of things in all the military services, but you can only do this one job in the Air Force. So I did that for uh, almost 13 years. And um, through it, we, my wife and I bought our first house in 2009. We lost the house to a flood in 2011. Oh, no. And then, you know, life comes and goes we had great opportunities we had not so great opportunities you know military experiences like anything else it's it's worthwhile but it's not all rainbows and unicorns it's not all perfect um and then i'll jump all the way ahead to 2020 2021 2020 was stressful for just about everyone yes, uh, in some capacity right certainly everyone i knew uh incurred some amount of stress, even if they didn't have a job security issue, it was still stressful for kids, for parents of kids, even for singles now who can't socialize with their friends as often as they want to. Right. And so on top of that, I applied to leave the Air Force in the middle of 2020. And we knew we were going to leave. This was planned. And we said it was time to go. We were having kids. We're settled in Ohio where, where we came from. Um, it's time to move on but I grossly underestimated how difficult the transition would be. Mm. So I almost look at, I almost look at my life, I guess, as, as punctuated by losing the house is kind of a weird moment. I, I point to it as a, as a defining moment, but I think at that time I was so new to the military. It was our first house. And, and to be honest, tons of people around us lost their houses. So it wasn't, it wasn't, uniquely us or even uniquely our neighborhood this was an entire town so everybody was kind of in that boat to an extent but my, my life up to this point has really been broken into three big periods birth to the death of my mom the death of my mom through my active duty military time where i'm kind of finding myself as that person post losing my mom and then now as i transition out of the military i'm out uh two months now I underestimated grossly how hard it would be to transition because for me, I think I was trying to figure myself out in high school and as soon as I found the Air Force in college, I latched onto it because it was the one thing I did halfway well. Um, 
wasn't that good of a student. I really just didn't know what I wanted to do. I've since proven that I can be a good student. The problem is I went to college as an 18 year old in the traditional age bracket Mm -hmm. because that's what you did. I'm the child of academics. And so college is a foregone conclusion, but I mean, I am in no way convinced that that's a good idea anymore. And so, you know, for my own kids, you know, who knows what life will be like 16 years from now, but so I latched onto the air force. That was something that kind of defined me as somebody useful to the world. Joined the air force did okay in the air force. Um, but then when I was getting out, I realized, well, I've, I've never been anything but an air force guy. I had jobs in college, but that, you know, that, that that's to get by and to pay rent. Um, my professional life has been defined by the air force and by the uniform. And so, you know, I spent about a year trying to figure out what I would go do. Would I go back to school? Would I get a job? Will I get a job that supports the family? We really don't want to lose our home. Um, our boys go to a daycare because we both work full time. Daycares cost money. Groceries cost yeah. money. You know, all these things that everybody worries about. But for me, it was, well, I need to find a job. And I had always derived individual meaning from my Air Force job. And so now I'm like, well, I, I have to do something, even if it's not meaningful to me at all. Right. I have to do something to earn income, literally to just survive. And then figure it out from there. But that, but that was a very, that was very difficult and it got very dark uh, mentally and emotionally for me in in 2020. And I I know it did for a lot of people, but for me, 2020 was stressful. We didn't see family for more than a year. We lived four hours from my in-laws and we still didn't see them because they lived with my wife's elderly grandmother. So they were trying to stay put. We weren't going anywhere. Uh, we were just working from home and all the while I'm just kind of toiling in my job in the last year, trying to figure out who am I and what am I trying to do? And so the reason why I started to coach and I started to talk about leadership a lot more often is because I, I worked, I have worked for more bad leaders than good by my own assessment. I know a lot of people who have, and that's not just a military critique. It, it tends to happen in corporate environments for some reason. Well, for several reasons, I guess. Um, But I realized that it's not enough. It's not enough to simply look at a CEO or a senior military officer or like somebody up high in the hierarchy and say, you need to do better. You can do that. People do that. There are executive coaches that you know, spend all their time trying to fix the C-suite. And I, and that's a worthy cause. But if all you do is spend your time working on the generation in charge or the generation currently in that seat or responsible, you're going to keep repeating the same cycle. Mm. So I have the same problem now with military transition as I talk to other people who are transitioning behind me and who had transitioned ahead of me. There are a lot of military members that don't transition successfully and and they get into a really bad place because the military does a great job assimilating you, bringing you in. It does a terrible job sending you out in a productive way. The military is just not set up for it. Uh, The Department of Defense, the government's not set up for it. So there are military folks that have succeeded in transition. There are people that have not succeeded in transition. And I know that's subjective, but 
you know, the key difference is they each took their own individual responsibility and said, nobody's going to help me. Nobody's going to give me answers to this. I have to do this and make this work because that's my responsibility to do it. Um, I think it's the same thing when you lead a team. Like, so for me, there were plenty of times where I walked into a room where I made a decision when I knew for a fact my boss or my boss's boss wouldn't like it, but I knew for a fact that it was better for the team uh, or the unit than it would be for me. And I, and it was always, it was tough for me to put into words why I felt that way, why that was the case. And I'm still even now struggling to put it into words, but I think ultimately what I'm most interested in is letting people know who are just starting out that the only person who is responsible for you leading well is you. Because you're, you're gonna walk into an organization where somebody you work for, somebody who's above you in the hierarchy, doesn't give two craps about you. Right. They're just there for the title. Okay, fine. If you spend all your time complaining about it, you're going to turn into them. So that's not worth it. If you spend all your time trying to gratify yourself to them so that they give you good marks on a performance review so that then you replace them so that then you can make a difference, you'll be too late because you will have become part of that cycle. So why I talk, why I started to coach and why I started talking about leadership is really for the folks who aspire to lead and think and are there for the right reasons, but they don't feel empowered or enabled because they're walking into some corporate superstructure where they're like, I'm never going to have a voice. It's never going to matter. And I'm like, do you really think? And so this is where I go all the way back to my mom. I don't, I don't know if this story makes any sense, but do you think me as a 14 year old sitting in a hospital would have assumed that I'm the dude telling people what to do? No, nobody wants to hear from a 14 year old kid in that environment. Um, but nobody else was doing it. And, and so my dad, who's a very smart guy, he's talking about treatment with the doctor and they're talking about all this stuff. And I finally stopped the conversation at one point, this was the Saturday when we went into the ER and I was like, can you explain to me what you're talking about right now? And I never would have done that had my mom been there because either she would have asked the question or I would have whispered to her, like, hey, what's that mean? Right? But she wasn't there anymore, right? She was my protector and she wasn't there anymore. And so in that moment, I realized if it's not me, it's no one else. It's up to me. And so, and so as I've gone on, I think probably one of the few common threads to my experience, which is pretty eclectic, is if it if it's not you it's no one else so don't you can't walk into a situation assuming that someone else is going to fix the glitch or speak to the problem or represent the other people better it's going to be you right. um so that's i guess my evolution in a nutshell and it's if it sounds messy uh it definitely <laughs> feels messy but you know i'm in a much better place from a transition perspective but that was um and and the the post I made pointed to the loss of my mom, the loss of our house, and military transition. Those are probably either the top three or three of the top five most difficult things I've ever done or dealt with in my life. Period. And I know I mentioned to you when we initially spoke that I thought what struck me was that it was such an adult thing for you to do, take control at that young age of fourteen to make those decisions. Okay, mom is going here. I won't. Mom's going to be cremated, and that stood out to me. And then also, just 
it, it was very grown up. And, you know, it just gets to my heart and making that transition. And we chatted before and I, I told you, and I'm going to call you out on this again, that I am not in a position to go ahead and coach somebody that's uh, transitioning from the military. But True. you have that knowledge. You do. You have that. And uh, you would be better suited for that. And you could tell with the passion that you that is something on your heart. Definitely on your heart. I really appreciate you sharing this vulnerable time because not too many, especially men, you're actually my first male guest. Most males don't come forward and share this vulnerable time. And I appreciate that. I really do. Thank you very much. And I know this will help somebody that's out there struggling with this right now with maybe a grief, the loss, or making that transition, which I really, really, I still feel very strongly that you really need to go towards that. I don't you, know why, yeah. but you said several times and I feel the wheels are at least turning in my head. I just don't know what that means, but yeah. But, um, but also you've made that transition, not only into leadership, but you help people financially, you help families financially by mm -hmm. um, leadership too. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm losing my words here. You're making a, definitely making a difference in your community, but also reaching out. Now, was that you, now do is it financial coaching or what is it I'm financial advising here. financial advising now financial did, advising. were you drawn to that as well because of your circum past circumstances losing your home and so on yes um so i was i was drawn to it primarily because so my family didn't talk about money and i know and i've heard that from a lot of people mm. you know at home money can be stressful uh, or a source of stress, especially if you don't perceive that you don't, if you don't think you have enough. Um, and so I actually, <clears throat> I had thought about it a couple of times while I was in the Air Force. And I, and then I wrote it off and I said, well, I don't have a finance degree. I don't know anything about the stock market. You know, like a lot of people, I made a lot of assumptions about what a financial advisor does, which all of them were wrong. Um, but so then I received a note you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and I received a recruiting note from one of the firms. Hey, come attend an info webinar. So I did and it was and I was interested and it's it's not the firm I ended up with, but it led me to a conversation with a friend of mine who I was stationed with. He is also a financial advisor. Uh, so I asked him, well, why did you get into it? And he was interested in money and finance and investing in things when he was younger. But the biggest thing for him was you know, when he got married before they had kids, they made all sorts of mistakes with their money, investing in these things. They weren't very organized or deliberate, right? They didn't save enough. And I was like, well, my parents didn't talk about money. I've come to find out my, my dad didn't start investing in his own employer program for several years um, because, you know, they didn't understand it. They thought they were just giving money away to something when they should have been saving it. And then for me personally, when I joined the Air Force, the military and the government, just like the private sector, has a retirement program. It's like a 401k. We call it something different. But as the paperwork was going around the room, this was my, you know, first base of assignment, the first location I would be at. I was sitting around with a bunch of other brand new airmen, didn't know anything about the Air Force. I hadn't been paid yet. And, so, and it actually took three months for my pay to catch up. So I was, I went three months without getting paid. And so, and I'm not the only one, but there's a bunch of us in this boat just kind of dealing with the, the, the machine catching up. 
And I got the paperwork for what we call TSP, Thrift Savings Plan. It's a 401k, same thing. And I got the paperwork and I'm like, so you're telling me it's going to take money out of my check every month, put it into this account, but I'm going to trust you to just take the money out and, and move it. And to be honest, at the time, I didn't trust the system or the finance department folks well enough to do it. And so I didn't sign up for it. That was, I just had this conversation with another family yesterday. That was the single biggest financial mistake I've ever made because so I, so I took the opportunity to give to a 401k, an investment account that's largely hands-off. You give money to it every month that you'll never miss, and uh, it grows for you in theory, right? Somebody's managing it. Somebody looks at it, and it's always your money, so you can get it later. But I, I point to a trust issue, but ultimately I just didn't do enough. I didn't ask any questions. I didn't do enough to learn about it. I didn't talk to my wife about I mean, I told her I made the decision. She and I were kind of were equally ignorant about it. So we're like, okay, well, if you give 5% to this, that's an extra 5% we could keep and save and do other things with. Well, how much of that do you think we saved every month deliberately? Mm, probably not much. <laughs> Zero. Uh, because we just don't. People don't, right? We, we have great intentions and then we just don't do it. So if there's leftover money in the checking account, great. We might not spend it. We might spend it on dinner out to celebrate that we have money left over. And then we're back in the same boat the next month. Right. So that was 2008. Okay. In 2011, we lived in Minot, North Dakota, a smaller town, populations like 35,000. And we had this tiny river that goes through town and it's called the, the Surus, but it was also nicknamed the mouse river, tiny river. And it's sources in Canada somewhere. And you never really think you, you can't really do much in the river. Like some people would kayak in it, but it wasn't very deep. Wasn't very big. Okay. Two years we live in Minot and this river doesn't make headlines for anything. And then all of a sudden we have a huge snowfall winter. And there was some, there was some drama about um, dam control upstream in Canada and North of us. And long story short, the river flooded to a, I think it was a 500 year level. Wow. And we lived on a hill. So we, we lived off the river by about a half mile and then up a hill. And we were looking at maps with flood projections and, and FEMA was all over the place. And right, there's all this disaster preparedness stuff happening. And they're issuing voluntary evacuation orders and we're right on the cusp of an evacuation area. And my wife's like, there is no way our house is gonna get hit. We had a friend who lived downhill and she said, I think if if we are flooded, it's because uh, his house, our buddy down the hill, his house is to the gutters, to the roof line. And I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Just looking at the, at the whatever, the topography, looking at the whatever. But I was still scared, I was still nervous. And so we were ordered to evacuate. We were staying with friends who took us in. They have now three kids. They had two kids and a house barely big enough. <laughs> and they took us in with our dogs. And um, I was at work on the base, on the military base. And everybody's affected by this flood. So we're watching local news. And they had evacuated us maybe a week prior. And the river was coming up and coming up and coming up. 
and the county officials finally rang the sirens because the the deal was at the point at which the river leaves its its protective dikes and all the extra stuff they had put up to try to hold it back at the point it breaches there's no controlling it it's just going to fill water is going to go where it can go and when the sirens go off that means you have minutes to get out if you're still in the area so the sirens are going off and we're all at work just kind of waiting to see what happens and they're on the local news, a news crew goes out to a town called Burlington, which is west of Minot, kind of a suburb-ish. And the reporter and the camera, the cameraman are standing in someone's front yard, and the camera's pointing north, at north toward the river from this person's front yard. And the reason why they're standing where they're standing is because the water comes up right to them. So they basically walked right to the water's edge. And this river had swelled well past its banks to, I don't know what the width, I mean, it was, you can find pictures of it online. Minot flood in 2011 and there's pictures, satellite pictures and stuff all over the place. I was watching the news and I'm watching it in an office with like 10 other people. And I'm standing there and it's one of those old TVs mounted on the ceiling like a hospital TV. And I'm looking at it and I realize she's in my front yard. Oh my gosh. So we lived in a split level. The house was on a hill, right? But there's like two different parts to the house. Okay. You walk in the living room and actually go downstairs to bedrooms. Mm. Our bedrooms had been flooded. The basement below it was completely flooded to the ceiling and my buddy's house down the hill was filled to the gutter, to the roof line. Um, so I know this is a really long story, but so that, so that day, that day I watched the TV and the first phone call I make is to base housing. Thousands of people made that same phone call in the coming days. The, the military people who were eligible, they're like, I have nowhere to live. My house is gone. Right. And so, it so ensues this frantic scramble to try to find places to live. But, and I, and I will, and I, and I have to say, we're one of the ones who got very lucky. So there wasn't much we could take out of the house. We evacuated with a small U-Haul trailers full of stuff. Mm. We were able to move on to the base. We moved in with, I think, a bed, a sofa, a couple nightstands, and then clothes and, and you know, valuables. We lost a lot of stuff in the house. A lot of people lost a lot of stuff in their house. But the the most important piece of that entire story for me and what I tell other people is when my wife and I went on active duty, we didn't have kids. We were both active duty military. And so, you know, a lot of times you, you hear the acronym dual income, no kids. And so if you're two young professionals working, making full-time pay, um, it sounds like a good place to be. And so, and, and we were like, you know, we're doing fine. We've got a little extra money every month. So we're not, we're not quite paycheck to paycheck. We should start saving or maybe investing. I actually almost called a financial advisor at the same firm I work with now, but you know, we've got time. We don't have kids yet. We're 24, 25. Then we lose the house. Uh, we had some money saved. All of that went into rebuilding the house so that we could try to sell it. Uh, FEMA was offering loans and grants. We took a $10,000, I think it was a forgivable loan to, you know, we're buying drywall and we're reinstalling plumbing and, and we're doing it because I don't have money to pay a contractor. A lot of us learned how to put up drywall. 
because of this event. A year passes by, we sell the house. All told, it's a $10,000 loss, which in the grand scheme of things isn't bad. But you know, quickly I realized there's no predicting what's gonna happen. Um, and because I didn't give to the 401k, like people should, I think, and like I should have, and because we weren't deliberate about any kind of savings and investment plan, we had no cushion. We had nothing for the unexpected. We had our jobs, right? We were active duty military. It is a secure job. And so we were definitely thankful that, you know, my boss was really understanding. He, he let us take time off. He let us get stuff out of the house. I was taking every free weekend I could to go back and put up more drywall. Uh, I had a buddy of mine who was helping me pretty much rebuild that house, you know, but altogether, the amount of stress that comes from just not having something set aside for the emergency, for the contingency, isn't worth it if you have the means to prepare for it. The problem is no one wants to have the conversation. And, and what I realized talking to my buddy in financial advising and now working as a financial advisor, you know, because people ask me, you've worked in nuclear weapons. What, that, what does that have to do with money management? And I, and I realized because the because the career interested me, but I couldn't figure out why. And it's because it's actually the exact same thing I used to do as a missile operator. I was right. Yeah, I'm looking. But, I'm sorry. I'm looking at you like what? <laughs> I was an instructor for about half of my career, so I taught other people how to operate the, the the system, and I taught them what everything meant on the console and how you know what launching a missile really looks like, and all these types of things. And in my world, in the nuclear world. You spend all of your time thinking about, in depth, thinking about scenarios you never want to have happen, mm. right? So on the other end of the spectrum, the special operator that gets, you know, a lot of the attention, the Navy SEAL, there's several Navy SEALs that have since become famous, you know, thought leaders, podcasters, all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, when you see Jocko Willink or Mark Devine talking to some group somewhere, you have a sense for what they've done because you've seen it on TV right. and not that TV is accurate, but you, you have a sense for what they're doing, right? SEAL teams and special operators doing stuff on the ground with high tech weapons and helicopters. And we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan all this time. People have seen that on the news. No missile operator has ever seen combat, right? We've only used two nuclear weapons in combat ever. And the whole reason my, system was designed was so that we'd never use it. It was designed to deter the Soviet Union. So my entire, my whole career was spent thinking about stuff that never happened and trying to plan for a war nobody's ever fought before. So it's a weird place to be, right? So you, so a lot of times I'm in a mental space where I'm having to convince someone, no, this is plausible and this is why, and this is why we have to train it this way. And that goes into a totally different branch of training philosophy and stuff. But so in this world now, what do I do? I have to talk to 25 year old, 30 year old married couples about life insurance. Because in their mind, like in my mind, when I was 25, life insurance is income replacement for when my, I die. Well, I'm 25. I don't make a lot. My wife is working. I don't need to worry about it but there's so much more to it than just income replacement. So I'm not, I'm not going to turn this into a financial counseling session, but the point is 
the reason why I got into it is because of all the mistakes I made and the reality that I have spent my entire professional life asking other people to consider the impossible or the unexpected, which I, which I think I, I, I always hesitate to say I'm good at it, but I am well practiced at it, getting someone to understand what could happen. Right. So my wife and I were both healthy. We didn't have children. We had the money to buy our first house. We had secure jobs. Minot, North Dakota is a pretty safe place to be. Um, all these things going for us. And so if you had told me in 2009, hey, you need to start putting away, even if you could do 500 a month, you need to start building some sort of nest egg because you know, you could lose your house. Mm. You don't have flood insurance because you didn't live in a floodplain. Of course. I'd look at you like you were insane. Like I'm not going to spend 500 a month against this savings goal or insurance plan when I could do other things with it. And, you know, and so we didn't, so we saved a little bit of money here and there, but it wasn't deliberate. Lo and behold, two years later, we lose our entire house and we have to sink whatever it was, tens of thousands of dollars into it to fix it. Like a lot of people did. And a lot of people were, in our, were in our boat, mid twenties, Young professionals, military members, secure job, healthy, young kids or no kids, right? A lot of indicators that most people would say, yeah, I don't, I don't need insurance. I don't need a lot of protection right now. We'll start that when I will start saving when we have kids. It's, it's too late because you haven't built the habit. So that's why I do what I do now because not just as a coach, and, and honestly, there's a lot of parallels between being a financial advisor and being a leadership coach. It really is coaching in, in both cases, because I'm in a, I'm in a position where I'm asking families and I'm asking everybody across the spectrum, people who are currently retired to, to young people. What if this happens? Are you prepared for this to happen? And no one wants to talk about what happens when their spouse dies. No, no, I mean, even inside right now, I'm like all cringy, but yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. I don't, I don't ever want to think about it. And it's taken me this long to finally get comfortable talking about it with my own wife and me. What happened? It's easy for me to talk about when I pass, I think, relatively easy. Mm -hmm. It is impossible almost for me to talk about my wife dying. Oh. But I signed us up and bought life insurance for her when I switched jobs. Um, for the same reason that I took a lot of time to figure out how much I should get for myself. Um, and I talked to her and I kind of forced her to listen to me for a few minutes about why this amount made sense for me. And she didn't want to talk about it. She didn't want to entertain the idea of me dying, but it's just impossible to predict. Right. And the plan is not ours. And, and she believes that as much as you or I do. And so, you know, I always point to that and I say, we didn't plan on losing the house. I didn't plan on my mom dying. You didn't plan on your grandmother dying when she did. We didn't, we didn't plan on a lot of these things. Right. And so, and now that we have kids, it's a little bit easier of an argument to make because now we're protecting them. It's not just about the two of us. Now it's about them. But I'm in the, I'm in the position of asking questions people don't want to ask themselves. And that's what I did as a nuclear weapons guy. Cause no one wants to talk about nuclear weapons either. Oh no. Oh no. But someone has to, if we're going to have them, we need to be good stewards of them, which means asking really uncomfortable questions. So that's what I do. And you know, what is very, um, 
what sticks out for me is because I, I do counsel, advocate for women. And there's guys too that are from abusive relationships. And when you come out of that relationship, you are like, you have nothing to your name, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And maybe you don't have anything saved up. So this is kind of something that stuck out for me. If, if somebody's just starting over, they have that loss. They lost the home to that spouse or their partner. They don't have anything and they're rebuilding that life. And I think that's why you are so important. If anybody is in this particular situation where you don't have anything and you're worried about that future, especially, and, and I don't mean to just say, hey, you got to buy this, guys. But no, I mean, yeah, this right. is something important, especially when you have little wee ones with you, mm -hmm. what's going to happen? You don't want your children to, um, you know, make the, the, the heavy decision. You don't want them to go with that toxic person or what will you have for them? Maybe at 14, they'll have to make that tough decision like you did, you know? So yeah, yeah it is important to have those discussions. So thank you for that. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Wow. It gave me a lot to think about. Okay, I got I got a case of the bumps. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. And I don't mean to joke about it because it is very serious. It, it, is. it is. I mean, you have to you have to laugh to some extent. Otherwise, I mean, both the, the military job and the, the money, the finance job I do now, right? You have to be able to laugh to some extent. But mm. I think you're right. And I actually hadn't thought about that, which is probably bad. I making the doing what i had to do when my mom died had a significant impact on me and it's tough to imagine my life without that happening to me now but i don't want my kids to have to do that either i'd, I'd like them to build their own resilience some other way um it's not fair to say i'd like them to build resilience easier because that's that's not possible probably but i don't want them in the position where they have to decide what to do with my body it's true so if I can, yeah, like, like making a will or a living will or, or all the things that the hospital asks you when you walk in for a routine appointment, you're like, no, I don't know. No, I don't, I don't need that right now. Right. right. So, I don't know. Okay, we're going to leave this on a heavy note. <laughs> no. well, definitely with a lot to think about, but it's encouraging to see where you are. You're, you're, you know, for anybody that's struggling with that grief, with that loss, look how far you've come. Honestly, look how far you've come. And again, making that military transition. And if there is anybody out there that is in the military right now and they can reach out to you, is that okay? Just to discuss maybe your battle yeah. with that, no pun intended, you know, war, uh, yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, but yes, please do. And we're going to sign off now. And thank you all for watching. I know many of you will be watching in the replay. I do appreciate that. And uh, give him some love. Maybe share this on your page visit also social media i do have his webpage right here yeah but um yeah thank you so very much for absolutely eye opening and even how with that transition um it, it just strikes me as you mentioned that military does give you all this training to get you into the military but mm -hmm. afterwards wow i learned a lot i really did so thank you for the time absolutely so I, I had a great time with you it was a great morning talking Oh, well, thank you. And for those that are watching, I hope you have a great rest of your day. And this is Melinda signing off. Mwah. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.